The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. But when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the king, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, after they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there I tell you for King Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him and so Joseph rose and took the child Jesus and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child, Jesus, and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who saw the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so now here in Matthew chapter 2, we've met the characters, we've heard the story, these people who surround Jesus in his earliest days. Jesus, God with us, God in human flesh. 
What kind of God do they encounter? How do they respond? And what does that mean for us? Well, the first thing that we see in this text is that we meet and they meet a God who offers incredible invitations. These wise men introduce us to a God who offers incredible invitations. As these children reminded us this morning, the first characters we meet are these wise men from the east. And they have traveled a long way, months, possibly years, in a world where there are no trains or planes or cars to get you where you're going for Christmas. And they have traveled this long, dusty road, having left behind many things in their old life and limping for sure by the time they get there, they have traveled this road for one purpose and one purpose only, to worship or pay homage to this child Jesus who has been born King of the Jews. They have come on this journey to worship, to pay homage to the King of Jews because they have received an invitation, an invitation in the form of a star that they have seen rise far away where they are and which they have interpreted as inviting them to come and meet Jesus. It's a weird, weird story, huh? Who are these guys? What sorts of people travel a long way because they see stuff up in the heavens? We don't know as much as we'd like to about these wise men, but what we do know is enough to know that these wise men are some of the last people who should have received an invitation to show up to Jesus' birthday celebration. I mean, on the one hand, they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're not members of the people of God. They're not even of the right kingdom, right? They come showing up looking for the king of the Jews, but they themselves are not Jews. Even worse, even worse, these wise men from the east are probably up to some pretty shady business. We don't know as much as we'd like, but the only other time we see this specific language of wise men in the Old Testament, it's about the dudes that Daniel runs into in the foreign king's courts. Do you remember those guys? These guys are like magicians and court counselors who are into all sorts of sketchy religious stuff to try to predict dreams and control the future. These are like bad dudes. They're involved in some really sketchy religious stuff, these wise men. And even worse, they're not just involved in sketchy religious stuff. They're involved in some sketchy religious politics as well because they use their sketchy religious practices to help these really oppressive, nasty kings who are always hurting God's people, right? So if you hear about wise men from the East, you've got enough to know that these guys are some sketchy people involved with sketchy religion in support of some sketchy politics. Now, we know enough in our world about sketchy religion. And we know enough in our world about sketchy religion in support of sketchy politics to know that these are not the people who should top the list on the invites to be the first to come and meet Jesus. These sketchy Gentile religious political personnel should be at the bottom of the list. And yet here they are, the very first people on scene to welcome this newborn king. And we know a little bit more about these people's sketchiness because they come after seeing a star, right? So of all the sketchy religious practices that they could have picked, these guys are astrologers. 
right? They're looking to the heavens. They're looking. They're, they're, they're the ones writing the horoscopes, okay? And bad news if you're into that. The Old Testament rejects all of that, right? Deuteronomy actually says, you're not allowed to do that. Looking up at the stars, trying to tell your future, trying to control the events. That's right out. That's illegal for God's people. You're not supposed to do it. Stop, God says, when he talks about this particular set of church practices, religious practices. And yet here they are, pagan astrologers, coming to meet Jesus, God with us, the King of the Jews, because they've received this incredible invitation. And I want you to think just with me for just another minute, for just another few minutes about the nature of that invitation. It's surprising that God goes after these guys in the first place, these pagan astrologers. But if you were God, how would you have gotten their attention? You know, it's interesting. God wants to get these pagan astrologers to the party, but he doesn't send them a copy of the Old Testament. He doesn't send them a missionary who invites them to a Bible study. He doesn't invite them to Jerusalem for a festival where they can learn their traditions of the faith. When God wants to get a hold of these people, these pagan people, these complicit and oppression people who spend all their time wrongly staring at the stars, God sends them a star. God says this word, quit doing that. Quit staring at the heavens. Quit trying to tell the future with the stars. That's wrong. Don't do that. And then God sends his son. And so what does he do to get their attention? He sends them a star. They're not supposed to be looking up there. But that's where God sends the message anyway. This is like God sending love notes to an alcoholic on the back of a beer bottle. This is like God wanting to get the attention of a greedy billionaire and so writing him an invitation on the back of a $100 bill. This is God getting in the muck with people who are where they're not supposed to be, doing what they're not supposed to be doing. This is God learning to speak the pagan religious language of his enemies. Why? Because this is a God who sends incredible invitations, who's willing to go to any lengths to get even these people, these sketchy religious, sketchy political types, to the party, to meet Jesus. Matthew introduces us to a God who is with us and a God who sends incredible invitations. But secondly, these incredible invitations in the story don't all get accepted, right? So the second thing that Matthew shows us is that we meet a God whose arrival generates rejection. If we pay attention to the characters, the wise men see the star and they follow, but they're pretty much the only ones. Who are the next few characters we meet? We meet King Herod, who wants to be king of the Jews. We meet all of his religious types who he consults to find out where this promised child should be born. And then all the people of Jerusalem, we run into all of them in the first few verses of chapter two, and none of them go to meet Jesus. Like the wise men, they get the invitation, but this God who is with us not only offers incredible invitations, his arrival also generates rejection. Now, the rejection looks differently for these different characters, right? Herod, who wants to be king, 
rejects Jesus violently. He wants to be in control. He wants to have the power. He knows that any other king is a threat to that. So when he hears about Jesus, he tries to put Jesus down with violence, with bloodshed, right? With power politics as usual. But the religious leaders and the people in Jerusalem, they reject Jesus, not with violence, but maybe with apathy, right? They see the wise—we're told all of this. They see the wise men come into town— they know that the wise men are looking for the promised king of the Jews. The religious leaders talk about the prophecy that tells them where they need to go. They see the wise men head out of Jerusalem on the way to look for him. And all the people of Jerusalem, stay put. Stay where they are. They don't join the wise men parade. They don't go looking in Bethlehem for the king. They stay behind. Why? Because the Jesus that Matthew introduces to us, the God who Matthew tells us has come near, his arrival generates rejection. Invitation to everyone so far in this story. But there are a lot of rejected invites, too. We're not told all the reasons why. We're just told that many don't join the parade to Bethlehem. Don't leave behind whatever was there in Jerusalem. They miss out. At least so far in our story, they reject the invitation. So we meet in this Jesus who is with us. On the one hand, a God who offers these incredible invitations, and yet a God whose invitations elicit rejection. But third, and maybe this explains the second point, we meet a God who demands a costly pledge of allegiance. Matthew shows us that this God who is with us is a king who demands a costly pledge of allegiance. Go back to what it is the wise men say. They say, we have come here to find the king so that we can worship him. Or some of your translations might say, bow down to him. Or some of your translations might say, pay homage to him. And what all of those have in common is this idea that there is, when a new king is on, comes on the scene, you basically have two options. You can ignore the new king and keep living kind of things are, depending on the kings and rulers and culture that you're in. Or you can side with the new arrived king and pledge your allegiance to him. And the wise men come to Jerusalem to pledge their costly allegiance to Jesus. And the other invitees in the story refuse to do so. Matthew's gospel, the Bible as a whole, will reinforce this again and again. Jesus is not a king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And so he confronts all the other kingdoms and communities to which you and I have previously pledged our allegiance. Are you following me? What that means is that the Christ child forces us to make a decision, a, a royal decision, a kingdom decision. Whose side are you on? That's how Jesus comes. The God who comes near to us is a God who asks us to pledge whose side are you on? And maybe that's why so many people stay behind in Jerusalem, because this is not an easy choice. 
Look at what pledging allegiance to Jesus cost the wise men. They have to leave behind everything they know. They have to spend inordinate amounts of time and energy taking a dangerous journey months, maybe years away. They run afoul of the political administration in Jerusalem. They have to run away from Bethlehem to escape being killed by Herod too. It's costly for these wise men to pledge their allegiance to Jesus. And while we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, I'd like to imagine that if they truly pledged their allegiance to Jesus, when they got back to wherever it was they came from, it was just getting started. Because remember, these guys were involved in all sorts of sketchy religion and sketchy politics, and they were pledged to other kings. And now they have to figure out what it means to follow Jesus there. What has to be thrown out? What has to be resisted? What has to be rejected? Them getting home is just the beginning of their lives, costly giving of allegiance to King Jesus, if I have my guess. If you don't believe me, look at another character who pledged their allegiance to Jesus in this story. Think about poor Joseph. Think about what it means for Joseph to receive Jesus' invitation. He has to stick with his fiance when she becomes pregnant unexpectedly by the Holy Spirit, enduring all of that shame. He has to get warned by a dream three times in this chapter alone that his life is in danger. I mean, you have a child, you usually like go, you know, when we had kids, Rebecca like would start nesting and like, you know, like making a nursery. When Joseph has a kid, it's like, run to Egypt before everyone dies. Right? <laughs> it's costly for Joseph to receive Jesus. It's costly for Joseph to pledge his allegiance to Jesus. He's on the run. This is the last time we hear from Joseph. The last thing we hear from Joseph is that he is on the run to escape death because he said yes to Jesus. That's the last thing we know about him. Pledging his allegiance to Jesus was costly business for Joseph. Later when Jesus says, you know, hey, foxes have their places to hang out and birds have nests to sleep in, but me, Jesus, I got no place to lay my head. He might have gone on and said, and I learned that from my stepdad, Joseph, because as soon as I came into his life, everything fell apart. It's traumatic for Joseph to pledge allegiance to Jesus. It is ironic that we in the American church have so often thought about getting involved with Jesus as meaning like all peaches and sunshine and roses. Or when we, we feel called to something difficult or costly, we feel like maybe our allegiance to God might make us have to give up something or go through something difficult. So, well, maybe God, surely God wouldn't want me to go through all that. Just look at his family. When God showed up, the God who came near to us in Jesus, he demanded costly allegiance that wrecks the lives of those who are around him. None of them were ever the same. No wonder Herod and the religious leaders and the normal people back in Jerusalem stayed behind. Who'd want to sign up for all that? Only those who know the fourth thing that Matthew tells us about this God, is that the God who is with us is a God who offers us outrageous joy. The only reason you'd ever follow the wise men, ever follow Joseph, ever pledge your costly allegiance to this child in Matthew 2, 
as if you believe the story that they told. That when the wise men showed up at the house and they saw where he was, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Don't you love that? I have kind of a literary personality. So I like to note that uh, Matthew doesn't tell us they rejoiced. He doesn't tell us they rejoiced exceedingly. He said, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew piles up like four different words to take us by the shoulders and say, this is joy, unimaginable joy, overflowing joy, unpredictable joy, irresistible joy, outrageous joy, joy worth leaving everything behind to get there. Joy worth having to rethink everything when you get back. Joy worth sticking with the pregnant woman you haven't married yet. And joy worth running with the child and his mother even to Egypt. Joy, outrageous joy, ludicrous joy. Jesus tells us this specifically in Matthew 13. He gives his people a story. This is just, you know, 12 chapters, 11 chapters later. He says, you know what the kingdom is like? You know what I'm offering as your king? Let me tell you. It's like a guy who's walking through a field and he trips and he looks down and he realizes there's treasure buried just underneath the surface. And he doesn't own this field, but now he knows there's treasure in it. And you know what he does? He goes back home and he sells every Dashgarn thing he has. He sells his car, he sells his house, he empties his 401k, he gives everything away, right? And you know what he's doing while he sells all that stuff? He's doing a hallelujah dance. He's filled with joy because as soon as he has that money, he can go back and buy the field and get all the treasure that's in it. Worth giving up everything for the treasure that's in the field. Jesus says, that's what my kingdom's like. The wise men knew that. Joseph knew that. Mary knew that. The shepherds knew that. His disciples knew that. We have left everything for you, Jesus. Why? For the joy, the outrageous joy, the abundant joy, the overwhelming joy that belongs to all who will pledge that costly allegiance to God. That's the kind of God with us that we have, according to Matthew. And I personally, being not only of kind of a literary mind, but also sort of an optimist, would like for us to stop there. Amen, hallelujah, you know? And then some of you, sure as tomorrow is Monday, would send me an email about the fact that the story doesn't end there, does it? This Matthew 2 chapter doesn't end with overwhelming joy. We wish it did, but it doesn't. It moves straight on from unimaginable joy to outrageous, unimaginable violence. It ends not only with Jesus on the run to Egypt, but all of his generation in Bethlehem slaughtered by this oppressive King Herod. The joy that is outrageous that the wise men experience gives way to the weeping and the lamenting that Matthew tells us cannot be quieted, cannot be silenced. In fact, the devastation and the injustice of it all is so severe that it reminds Matthew of one of the peoples of God's previous experiences with rampant injustice. The, 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 the death of these innocent children is so 
horrendous that it forces Matthew to think about another horrific event from their past. So Matthew picks up his Old Testament and he says, this is just like when the people of God were taken away from Jerusalem into exile. This is just like when those bad kings came to us and burnt our capital and destroyed God's temple and took our children into captivity far away. This is like that time in Jeremiah when Jeremiah talked about how there was a voice heard weeping and loud lamentation, weeping, Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Can't get much darker than that, Matthew's telling us. This moment in Bethlehem, Jesus escapes. Many are not nearly so lucky. And it reminds the wailing and the weeping and the lamenting, reminds Matthew of that dark day in the past. We wish the story ended in joy, but it doesn't. It goes on to violence and apparent hopelessness. But this is the last thing that Matthew wants to show us about this God who is with us. The last thing that this God who is with us, Matthew, wants to show us is this. Even at the moment of unimaginable pain, God is at work offering difficult hope. Matthew tells this story to remind us of the worst of the worst, the worst thing that you can imagine. Matthew tells about it. Why? To remind you that this God who is with us offers unimaginable, difficult hope. How do we see that? Well, Matthew quotes Jeremiah to remind the people that they've been through this before, right? They knew that passage from Jeremiah. And because the people that Matthew's writing to knew that passage in Jeremiah, they knew what came around that passage from Jeremiah. He says, go back and read sometime Jeremiah 31. The only sad verses in the whole chapter are the ones that Matthew quotes. Do you know Why? Because in the situation that Jeremiah is writing in, what he is saying is to the community, you've experienced unimaginable suffering, uncomfortable, literally, unable to be comforted suffering. And then God offers this word of hope. Even in your darkest moment, God is on the move. God is at work. And this midnight darkness is about to turn into the brightness of the dawn. That's why in Jeremiah, when the people raise their voices, refusing to be comforted, God immediately responds, there is hope for your future. I will bring your children back from the land of the enemy. In other words, Matthew quotes a chapter where the people are in unimaginable suffering. It looks like God has completely vacated the scene. It feels like God has completely abandoned the people. And in that moment back in Jeremiah's day, God had said, I had not abandoned you. The darkness will give way to the dawn. I am on the move. I will restore you. Why would Matthew quote that passage here? Because he is saying that even here in the devastating, unimaginable, horrific violence against these children, God is yet on the move, about to do a new thing, about to do a new thing, in fact, with this very Jesus, who seems to have escaped the violence. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is like a new Moses in this passage. You remember Moses, the liberator, when he was born, there was a Pharaoh who was killing children, and Moses escaped. And Jesus is like that. He's born under oppressor. People are killing children, and he escapes. 
But Moses escaped Pharaoh so that he could come back and announce the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son in judgment. Jesus isn't like that at all. Jesus escapes the bloodshed of this new Pharaoh so that he can give his blood as the firstborn son to put an end to judgment, to bring salvation. Moses survives to announce judgment on the oppressor's firstborn son. Jesus survives to announce his willing death as God's firstborn son. The only hope for those innocent children in Bethlehem, the only hope for their lamenting parents, the only hope in a world of incredible violence is that the God who came to us in Jesus and had a near miss with injustice in his childhood had that near miss precisely so he could go to the cross and give himself, give himself on the cross for you and for me and for all who have lived and would call upon his name. The God that Matthew introduces to us, who is with us, is a God who is with us, a God who is with us in our suffering, but more than that, a God who willingly suffers for us, willingly dies for us. And it is that difficult hope that Matthew introduces us to here in this text. So that's the God with whom we have to deal this morning in Scripture. That's who God is with us. This is the king. This is the one who we meet, the king of the Jews, one who sends out incredible invitations, one whose arrival generates rejection and who calls people to make a costly pledge of allegiance. This is the king who offers all who make that pledge of allegiance outrageous joy and offers them difficult hope in the darkest periods of their lives. That's the God with whom we have to deal this morning. It's an incredible story, and the task for us is to ask, where are we in that story today? Where are you? Are you with the wise men in the far country, far from God, seeing signs that perhaps, just perhaps, the God of the universe might love you enough to save you? If you are far away, if you are with the wise men in the east and you have gotten a glimpse of the light of God, come and worship this morning. Come with the wise men. Come and meet Jesus. Are you with Herod and the people in Jerusalem this morning? You've heard all this stuff about King Jesus, but you are either too angry or apathetic to come to him. You are too angry or apathetic about the fact that this Jesus asks you to pledge your allegiance so that you have to give him control over what you do with your life and where you live and where you work and where you spend your money and what you do with your body and what you do with your politics and what you do with your power and what you do with... Is that outrageous to you? Are you with Herod and the Jerusalemites this morning? Don't stay there. Get on the wise man train. Follow the parade. Look to the star. Come to Jesus. Pledge your life to him. Are you with the wise men when they arrive at the house? Are you filled with joy, exceedingly great, abundant joy? Because you know that God loves you enough to come running after you. Come this morning and worship him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Are you in that dark night of suffering with the women and men refusing to be comforted because the violence is just too great? 
hear the message. There is a God in heaven who has gone through the worst violence imaginable for your sake. Wherever you are in this story, from whichever vantage point you catch a glimpse of the light of the star, follow the light. Come to Jesus. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn living King. Let's pray. Jesus, would the radiant light of your presence break through everything that is in the way and draw us to you. Bring us to you, Jesus. Bring us to you. Draw us by your spirit. Send the star. Move our feet. Soften our hearts so that we might find you and the exceedingly abundant joy that you give. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. And now, if you will spread your arms wide to receive God's blessing offered to you in Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. The Lord make the light of his countenance shine upon you and the Lord give you unimaginable peace now and forevermore. Amen.